I'm Liz with Teachstone, and this is Teaching with Class. On today's episode, we'll discuss regard for student perspectives. We'll tackle what regard looks like in an inclusive or special education classroom, how to handle when students make requests for different songs or stories during whole group time, and some simple strategies for encouraging expression and autonomy while meeting your learning objectives. I've brought back Sarah Haddon, who you may remember from our episode on behavior management. So regard, Sarah, can you tell us first how you define regard? What is regard for student perspectives? What are we looking for when we look for regard? Yeah, so it's actually hard for me to just come up with a definition. And I think it's because I've been doing this for so long that I know all the definitions by heart. But I think what's most important in terms of regard is thinking about really how the teacher is, is paying attention to the kids and and following, following their leads, which is um, part of that flexibility and student focus, mm-hmm. how the teacher is giving them that room to, to do things on their own, to give them real responsibilities, because that's, that's critical as children grow up. Um, so I'm, clearly, I'm just reading the indicators. Um, and then that, that student expression where what we're looking at is a teacher who is really genuinely interested in how the children see the world. Mm-hmm. So she's asking or he's asking them questions um, that are very open-ended, that don't have a right answer, and, and listening and responding and really wanting to hear what the, what the children think. And then there is that whole restriction of movement where we're not expecting kids to be something they're not. Um, I always think about you know, I don't, I don't sit still very well, ever have as a little kid, and I don't now as a full-fledged adult. I don't sit very well, in fact. Standing right now. I am standing right now. <laughs> I actually, I am standing right now. And so it's kind of ridiculous to think that, especially for little kids. So just having that understanding of, of kids' development and where they are, and that when kids are excited, we should, we should pay attention to what they're excited to. We should give them those responsibilities. So I didn't give you a definition, and I'm sorry about that. I think that is a definition. I think it's an interesting thing with regard. It's one of the few dimensions that we see really across almost every age level other than infant. We have regard for child perspectives and then regard for student perspectives. Uh, And it's not one that I, when I was in the classroom, was really taught or thought about a lot. I, I, and I think especially as a new teacher, it can be really a tricky one because you, it's easy to think, well, I have this lesson plan and I have these objectives. And if I let the students you know, derail those, then I won't get through what I've planned. And I think that's where it can feel tricky, but it, it's really not about walking into a setting with no plan or no objective and letting the students run the show. It's right. finding that balance. Exactly, exactly. And, and one of the things I often tell people is that a, a classroom that's high in regard for student perspective doesn't mean that it's, um, it's complete chaos and it's completely child-led, but what it does mean is that there's flexibility within the structure. Mm-hmm. And it's teachers being open to understanding that these are my learning objectives, but there may be some um, slightly different paths we go down to get to those objectives, and that that's okay. And you can find opportunities for autonomy or opportunities for responsibility 
within your plans. It doesn't mean it has to be exactly the, the way each and every student pictures it. Absolutely, and I think that, um, that teachers really, as they're thinking about their lesson plans, it's something they do need to think about is some alternative ways, how kids might respond and what might they do with those responses. Well, I'm gonna ask you two questions that we had community members submit around their struggles with regard, uh, and I'm sure you'll have some good ideas for them. So this first one is, some of my teachers struggle with what to do when children make requests for specific songs or movement activities or stories at whole group time. And we had a really similar question that makes me think a lot of people have similar struggles of basically, what do you do when a teacher's caught off guard when a, a child wants to take an activity in a different direction? What would you suggest for those coaches or those teachers? Yeah, so I've, I've heard the two things you pointed out. The first is that flexibility about specific activities they do, and the other is taking that activity in a different direction. But let's talk about the first. Mm -hmm. We'll be talking about that first one. And to me, I would ask um, the coaches to ask the teachers or ask the teachers to think about what is the point of the activity? Thinking about you know, preschoolers, why do they sing songs? Why do they read stories? What are their learning objectives? And more importantly, will it change anything if they veer off course? Uh, if, for example, the um when they read a book that the objectives are to introduce new vocabulary teach skills such as directionality of print or book handling those skills can be addressed in any book mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be whatever the book is and so um thinking about this for example if a teacher um there's a great little there's a great children's book called down on the farm and the teacher may have decided to read that because they're doing they're taking a field trip to the farm in that case, it, it could make a difference in terms of her objectives for that book activity. If, however, the teacher just picks a book because she likes it, it shouldn't really be a problem. As a teacher, it is better if we can preview the, if we can preview the books and think through how we would introduce new vocabulary and think through how we can really dig in for some higher order thinking questions. But I also think that you know, most teachers are really adept at making adaptations as they go along because that's what teaching is about. And so, but I want to get back to this example about the farm book and how the teacher can say, can still have some, still show regard for the, for the students and say, you know, she's got out the book and says, look at this great book. And a couple of kids say, oh, but we really want to read uh, Papa Get the Moon for Me, that great Eric Carle book. The teacher can still show regard by saying, you know what, that's a great book. I really like it too. Today we're reading this book because we're going to the farm and I want you to be able to think more about what we're gonna see and what we can expect when we make our trip. But I'm gonna write myself a note and I'm gonna make sure that we do get to this book um, because I know you wanna read it. And how about I um, put it in the book area at center time when you can look at it and. You know, when I come through, if there are a bunch of you who want to read it, we can do that as well. Mm. So the teacher still, um, still met her objectives of teaching them the vocabulary and the ideas about the farm, what to expect, but has also shown regard and said, yes, I hear you, I value what you're saying, and we're going to do it. So the key then is that the teacher then does indeed go back and do that. I mean, that covers a lot of them. You're, you're giving the opportunity for them to express themselves. You're giving them um, the student focus. You're showing flexibility, even though you're still reading the same exact book that you plan to read. Exactly. 
Exactly. And so I think that that's, you know, when I first uh, started learning the class, I remember, um, and I actually I still have it written in my manual, teacher directed versus child initiative. And when I do class trainings, I talk about the teacher who's the my way or the highway mm -hmm. at one end of the extreme. And at the other extreme is where kids are in charge of everything, which is really not good in most classrooms. And so it's going back to that balance of, of the child initiated and taking child's ideas into account when it's really appropriate. Right. So, and then um, the, the second part of this was about taking an activity in a different direction. Is that right? Yeah. What it, okay. It also reminds me of the, of the question um, that I heard about teachers who fix kids' art projects. So <laughs> <laughs> the cookie cutter things that have to look like this. And so with that, I'd also say it goes back to the purpose. Why do kids do the art project? Are they doing an art project so that they can take home um, maybe a cut and paste snowman that looks exactly like the teacher? Or are they doing the project uh, to foster their fine motor skills? They're cutting, they're gluing, they're pasting, that eye-hand coordination. Are they doing it to foster their creativity and using their imaginations? And I, um, and thinking about this, I was reminded of a video that we used to have on our video library. It's not there anymore, but it was, I think it was called Making a Dreamland or Building a Dreamland. And it was a preschool classroom. And the teacher gave each child a, like a lunch tray with a whole bunch of clay. And uh, they had this whole table covered with feathers and twigs and sequins and and shapes, little, like those little plastic shapes, all of this stuff. And she, as she went around to the table, she talked to the kids and said, I want you to make a dreamland. You can make it any way you want. And I remember one little guy made a pirate and he had a parrot on his shoulder. And the teacher was saying, well, why did you include them in their dreamland? What are they going to be doing? Um, and it was just, so it was a fine motor activity. So the kids got to use the Play-Doh, right? And they got to use eye-hand coordination, but they got to really think much more deeply about that than they would have if the teacher had said, okay, everybody, we're going to make snakes yeah. and make balls. And then we're going to line the balls up. And, you know, it was just this, this great. So I think it's hard uh, to also communicate that to parents. As a teacher, I sort of had this feeling like I was expected to send home the pretty projects. Right. And there maybe is a time and a place for the pretty cooker, you know, cookie cutter snowman or the beautiful Mother's Day craft. But I think then communicating that the intention of this thing that's coming home was not that. And making sure that everybody, both the students and the parents and the teachers are aware of the objectives and why it is that we are allowing them that flexibility can be helpful. Absolutely. And I'm reminded of a, a teacher I first met oh, about 20 years ago. And over every center, she had a big uh, laminated sign hanging over each center that said, I am learning. And it talked about all the different skills that kids were gaining in the different areas. And it was really more for parents and visitors mm -hmm. um, to understand the purpose of these different centers and that this play was very purposeful and was leading to growth and development. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that those are some really good ideas. Uh, I'll ask the second one that might be uh, maybe a trickier one. Okay. The 
this member wrote, I would like to know how to apply regard for student perspectives on children with special needs who are part of an inclusive classroom, especially children with autism, global delay, or sensory integration issues. I'd be glad to know and learn more about this. You're right, that's a little trickier. Um, I'm gonna give you the, uh, the easiest answer first, which is that we show regard in the same way that we show regard for all children because children um, who have special needs are children first and foremost. And actually I did know this question was coming. So I pulled out, I don't know if all of our listeners know that we have on our website a, a document that includes recommendations for observing and inclusive classrooms. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I specifically pulled out the paragraph on regard. Um, so while the first three indicators in this dimension, flexibility and student focus, support for autonomy and leadership and student expression, directly measure the things that teachers do to promote children's interests, motivations, and points of view, teachers need to think about how they're acknowledging and building on children's interests. For example, if a teacher is noticing that a bunch of children um, are watching ladybugs out on the playground, uh, she may ditch the book that she had planned to read and pull out um, another Eric Carle book. <laughs> I promise I don't have stock in Eric Carle book. Um, I just happen to really like them. Um, the Grouchy Ladybug, when they go inside, instead of the book that, um, that she had that she had already picked. Along the same lines, she can ask children where they're going to play during centers, some kids may not be able to articulate, so that she may follow their eye gaze. She may allow them to point. Um, they may be using picture cards, lots of different ways to indicate that preference, but giving kids those choices. The teacher may also give um, the children more time to formulate responses or have them point to cards to share their ideas. For example, after finishing a story about a little girl who lost her puppy, the teacher may ask, how did the girl feel when she couldn't find her puppy? and wait while the child who uses an augmentative communication device locates a picture of sad. She might then follow up by saying, yes, she felt sad. What makes you feel sad? And again, wait for the child to formulate a response. Mm. So in that, we've got some flexibility in that piece that I just read you. We've got choice. And in this case, the teacher's also encouraging um, student expression. And I think a lot of people are wonder about student expression, especially when kids have limited language abilities, but we can still do it. We just, our expectations about what we might hear are not going to be, might be a little briefer. And just have you think about it a little bit more. Uh, when I taught preschoolers with autism, we were a um, highly structured program, and it was really by, by necessity. And when kids arrived in the morning, we had a table set up with table, table, um, you know, fine motor toys. Mm -hmm. And our kids had really long bus rides and they were three and four years old. Somebody had to go out to the bus to meet them and walk them into the classroom. And then somebody else needed to take them down the hall to the bathroom and then somebody else needed to monitor. And so having them all at the table top area was really a good idea, but within that table, they could do whatever they wanted. And if they you know, indicated that they wanted to do a table activity that wasn't there by going over to the bins, that was okay. Mm -hmm. Similarly, they could sit wherever they wanted during circle. They helped pick our songs. They helped pick our, our movement activities by um, using picture cards. They had a choice about where to go. I should also say um, that picture cards, just in general, are a great way to give kids choice and to help build vocabulary and also help some kids who may not have a sense of a great sense of autonomy, a sense of autonomy and accomplishment. And another example of that would be 
I actually started my, my career teaching kids with pretty significant physical and cognitive disabilities and in elementary school. And you might think that, gosh, you know, you'd really have to do everything for, for some of those kids. And the answer was, no, that's not true, because there's this thing called partial participation, where we allow kids to do what they can do, a piece of the activity. They may not be able to do all of it. So, for example, the child might be able to go to the sink. Um, it doesn't have the fine motor control to, to turn on the water, but can get his hands wet and can get the soap and put those hands under the, under the faucet. But then, again, because of fine motor limitations, can't turn the water off. It's better that the child can do those pieces that he or she can do than to have the teacher do everything. Um, what else was I thinking about that? Uh, also, sorry, it, it shows how intimately tied teacher sensitivity and regard are, that you know, everything you're saying is also a teacher being aware and responsive and addressing problems and um, a, a student that's comfortable seeking, seeking comfort. And, and it seems like any child with sensory processing disorder or sensory integration issues, you know, things like the way we, you know, allow them to move or, or not restrict movement would, would be really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and thinking about that sensory, um, you know, I think back to the, the shaving cream, right? We all, every, every teacher at preschool mm -hmm. probably put shaving cream at the table at some time, right? Because it is, it's a great fine motor activity and the kids love it and they get it all over the place and they think it's fabulous. But you might have a child with a sensory issue who doesn't want to touch that. And you can force it and have a meltdown in your classroom or you can think about how can that child get those same um, experiences with their, with their fine motor and their language. Yeah. Um, and do it right next to the shaving cream. Right. So that they're still part of the, so they're, they are a part of the activity and maybe, you know, in making big swirls just in sand, like a little tray of sand, they bump their little pinky into, into shaving cream. They can say, look, it's okay. You know, the world didn't, you touch the shaving cream and you're okay. It's all right. And so that might actually open the door to the child being a little bit more open to trying some different textures that maybe he or she didn't think they could handle. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think it sounds like really your answer is the same way you would apply regard for any other child of, of be aware mm -hmm. and take that awareness into showing that you care about their perspective. Yeah. And, and I think um, because so much of, of, well, at least a piece of regard is about that autonomy and that choice, really not setting a mindset of how this child is going to be limited. Mm -hmm. uh, so example, and, I, and I think this also is where assistive technology comes in. You know, you can have a child who um, has a lot of motor issues and has a really difficult time scooping their food. And so they, so it takes them longer to eat and it's really messy. Well, let's think about an, a nice built up spoon and think maybe about some support by guiding them at the elbows to be able to scoop by themselves they're eating by themselves then. And yes, yeah, it's going to be messy. It is, but you're also teaching the child a skill that's going to help him or her down the road. Um, and make, again, giving that child some autonomy in your classroom. I think it's really important. Well, thank you so much for always having, having such great answers for us. And I'm sure we'll, we'll reach back out to you again, Sarah. All right. Thanks, Liz. It was fun. 
Thank you for joining us for Teaching with Class. Log into the Class Learning Community to share your tips, tricks, or struggles with incorporating Regard. Then tell us what topics you'd like us to cover next.